Casey List is back. Hey, Casey. Hey, how are you? Hey, great. Uh, we've got WWC coming up, and uh, instead of just talking about rumors, to, to keep this episode a little more evergreen, I wanted to talk about developers. Yes, developers, developers, developers. As we all say all the time, developers three times, we'll uh, summon a developer <laughs> to start off. I mean, I'm sure most people listening know who you are, but like, let's get a bit of a, a, a background on the story of Casey List, the developer. We, we know the podcaster. Uh, if anybody isn't familiar with that side of your work, obviously you should be listening to ATP and Analog. But what's your what's your backstory on how you started making things on computers? Sure. So how many hours do you have, Tyler? That's the real question. But, <laughs> this is uh, a no, six-part uh, episode. Yeah, right. <laughs> and we're recording it all in one sitting, so buckle up, buddy. Now, uh, the short, short version is uh, when I was a kid, I always had an affinity for or you know, just general like of computers. And you know, I was born in 82, and so when I was coming of age, you know, a computer meant DOS if you were not a Mac user, and I wasn't at the time. And my dad worked for IBM for effectively my entire life. And so uh, he, we always had PCs in the house, specifically IBM PCs. And, you know, dad would set up games for me or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, but it was DOS, and if you're not familiar with it, it was a command line, right? So you had to type in things in order to get the computer to do stuff. And at this point, I don't think a mouse even existed on, on the PCs that we owned. And so I would always ask dad, dad, you know, how do I do this? Hey, can you start this? Can you do that for me? What's going on here? And eventually, after I'm sure I was just nagging him to death about something, probably on a day when he just had a bad day, eventually he just said, just... Just just read the book, man. Okay, just read the book. And he literally handed me the DOS like user's guide. And again, if you're not familiar with DOS, like this is not particularly approachable. And it was considered to be more approachable at the time because it really wasn't an alternative. Well, there is a good reason I'm not familiar with it because it's really unapproachable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm like eight or something like that or 10 at this time. I don't remember exactly how old I was. But, uh, but I eventually, you know, out of my own frustration was like, well, if dad either can't or isn't going to help me, well, I got to help myself. And so I read, it was like DOS 3.1 or something like that. I actually found the the owner's man or the user's manual uh, a couple of years ago and have a copy lying around here somewhere. And I can, I can put a scan of it in the show notes if I remember. But, uh, but suffice to say, it was this very unapproachable thing. And, and I ended up reading it and, and I learned how to make like a menuing system in DOS. And if you happen to be a developer or, or someone who's familiar with stuff of that age, you know, I, I did a, a series of batch files. And so what ended up happening was I would start the computer and it would bring up like a menu and I would type one for game and then, I don't know, A for whatever, Carmen Sandiego or something like that. And it would start Carmen Sandiego for me. And that was like a very, very rudimentary form of programming when I'm you know, eight or 10 years old or something like that. And then fast forward a few years and someone had handed me a version of QBasic, which was the uh, basic programming language. Um, that And the, the QBasic came with all Microsoft DOS uh, installations, but this particular one was a compiler, which means it would make a program that you could run without having the source code uh, of that program, which was amazing. And I, I mean, this was clearly pirated. I have no idea how a 10-year-old kid came up with like this $500 piece of software. I don't know where it came from. I really, truly don't. But, you know, then I could start making th things that you could run on DOS. And it, I would make like stupid choose-your-own-adventure games that I never finished, but that really got me interested. And then somebody handed me version 1.0 of Visual Basic, and this is now on Windows. And I would play with that, including during the summers with my friend Marco Armand, who would later become somewhat of an influential uh, force in both my life and technology in general. But, you know, at 10 years old, we would make choose-your-own-adventure games in Visual Basic. And then eventually I went to school for computer engineering and then did um, some native development, although we didn't really call it that at the time. 
including on DOS, coincidentally, this was in 2004. Uh, I was writing uh, slot machines uh, in 2004 that ran on DOS, and then eventually moved to web programming, eventually moved to mobile programming. And then as as of almost a year ago, I have been an independent developer. And as of a week ago, as we record, this just came out with my first completely independent iOS app, which is very exciting. Yeah, I mean, so that's a lot of the reason I want, like this timing was perfect. You've just done your first big independent app, Mm -hmm. which I think, you know, is part of the aspiration or it's part of the thing people get excited about doing right now is like they've heard how great it can be to have a career developing apps and now you, you've just done one i mean you've kind of moved from having a, a old school jobby job to a one-man show putting out an app and uh, this you know this is a bit following up from that previous episode where matt workman was here and he was doing stuff sort of like what i do now of uh you know freelance cinema photography and youtube and doing really well at it i mean he's he's got a bigger account than i do but has sort of let it go to focus on his app. And um, I don't know, he planted this little seed of why am I not, why am I not thinking about someday building something myself, which I guess I'll take this opportunity to give my bit of a backstory of how I've been exposed to development. I never learned to code any real languages, um, but <laughs> I, I worked at several websites. So I've been surrounded by developers for years, like for, you know, at least a decade of working closely with teams of developers. Well, I'm more on the user interface side and the design side. And that means I'm working with like CSS and HTML and just front end stuff. And they're actually doing the hard work of building it, making it work. But so, you know, I've had to work hand in hand with them and be aware of what their limitations are and what their requirements are from me in terms of developing the overall product, which that's kind of how I'd describe like what I did was like product design. So what is it that we're building and what are all the features going to be? And then how do they interact with each other and just uh, coordinating closely with the team of developers. But I almost think there's an advantage of going in as a, as a one person developer at the beginning of your career, because you have to learn everything. Mm -hmm. And I started off with a team. So I was like, "Ah, I'll let them do that hard work. Uh, I I, I don't need to learn that. Um, and now I'd really recommend, I mean, if anybody's looking into doing design or front-end design, which, you know, hopefully I can cover more completely in a future episode, I would say you you really need to spend a little more time learning to code than I did. Because back in the day, you'd crack open Photoshop, create some layers that are like, here's my wild imagination of like, this app could be absolutely anything and I'll just draw it whether or not it makes any sense. And then I'll let somebody else figure out if that's buildable. <laughs> now we live in a world of a lot more like live prototyping and where I think it's a lot more useful for designers to be able to get a little bit hands-on. So I started, I, I kind of stopped uh, my design career right as that transition. <laughs> I think it got like more and more popular. The last time I really did serious design was about three years ago. So that's where I am now. Yeah, it's funny too because I tend to do better on the more boring sides of development, so the things that are not user interface. And to me, CSS, even a couple of years ago when I was last really into it, CSS was always like this almost unknowable entity that that I could get I could get what I needed done, but it was a fight the entire time. And so for you to kind of fluff off you know, oh, it's not real programming, it's just CSS. And to me, that's almost harder than the sorts of things that I do. That I do. And so it's it, everything is relative, right? You know, it's, it's, 
it's all in what you're good at and what you have a particular affinity for or, or aptitude for is perhaps a better word. Yeah. And, and I don't want to do a disservice for anybody that hasn't learned CSS yet and they're like looking into it and they're like, I heard it was supposed to be easy and then they try <laughs> and it's, it's not so easy. I mean, yeah, I, sh- I shouldn't make it. Like, I, I, had to, I had to work pretty hard to understand it properly, sure. especially you know how to use it well and uh, integrate it into a more holistic system. And eventually, you know, use frameworks like, um, I mean, the last site we built was using uh, Bootstrap, which of course. simplifies a lot of things, and uh, but also let, opens up a lot of new possibilities. So understanding all those different components does take a lot of time, whether it's on the front end or the back end. But th- that's the, the path I'd love for this episode to go is like, let's figure out what do you need to consider if you want to go down a path of either you know, back-end development, front-end development, maybe touch on, like, how that integrates with design. Like, if somebody hasn't started to get into this world, do you know what the entry point would be now? I mean, they're probably not going to start with DOS. But <laughs> what's not. a good place to start? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And unfortunately, there's about 80 billion answers to it. So let me kind of try to answer your question, and then I'm going to reframe everything, and maybe we can kind of start over. So bear with me here. But to to kind of directly answer your question, I think the most obvious place to start for a lot of people is probably JavaScript. And that's a funny thing, because most professional developers really don't like JavaScript. It's very loosey-goosey. It's not terribly robust. It has a lot of weird gotchas and corner cases that are that are non-obvious. And so most most quote-unquote real developers really hate JavaScript. But the one thing that's interesting about JavaScript is that it is everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it started on the web, but it's moved to the server side. It's you you can find them in in apps, you can find JavaScript in apps, you can find JavaScript almost everywhere and it can do almost anything. And as a versatile language, I think it it wins a lot of points. But I think the real question that one should ask themselves is, what am I trying to accomplish? And, you know, as one of the hosts of ATP, you know, we're the three of us are professional developers. And so we often get asked by people who listen to the show, you know, I'm really interested about the when you guys go into the nitty gritty of code stuff. What should I do to get started programming? And I never really felt like I had a good answer to that. And then after a couple of years of trying to answer it as best I could, I put up a summary on my website that was probably three or four years old now, and, and I'll give you know Tyler a link. We'll put it in the show, show notes. notes. Yeah. But but um, in summary, that that post, which is very short, just says find a thing you want and build it. And I know that sounds kind of flippant at first, but in my experience, the only way I've ever really been able to learn, say, a new programming language or a new paradigm or a new set of APIs, which is to say a new mechanism for building an app or, or what have you, the only way I've ever been able to do that successfully is if I'm trying to reach a tangible goal. If I decide out of the blue, I want to learn Swift, well, I could probably get to the point that I'm passable at it without any particular goal. But in order to get a real understanding, I was almost going to say mastery, but it's not even a mastery. To get a real understanding of Swift or JavaScript or what have you, you really, or at least I really need to have a tangible goal in mind. So a couple of examples of this, you know, when I was doing kind of boring intranet work, uh, this is many years ago now, actually over a decade ago now, uh, I decided I wanted to learn Objective-C, which at the time was the only language you could use to write an iOS app. And Objective-C was, at the time, a very esoteric, very peculiar language that nobody had really used for all intents and purposes. 
And I tried reading a book about it, and that book was very good. I forget the name of it. Uh, I can't even remember the author off the top of my head, but um, it had like a little Vespa on the front cover. I know that much. I can I can look it up. But um, one way or another, uh, I, I read the book, and that was fine, but it wasn't until I decided to write an app that I really started to understand how Objective-C works. Then later on, I wanted to figure out how Node works. Node is a mechanism of server-side programming to make websites and APIs. And so my website, caseylist.com, is written in Node. And the reason I learned Node was because I wanted to build my website. And then eventually I wanted to learn Swift, and so I started building stuff in Swift. And so to me, the, the number one way to get started with any kind of programming at all is to find a need in your life and then fulfill that need. And I know that's kind of off-putting at first because you may not have a need that you can think of in your life, but it can be something very simple or something very grandiose. Whatever the case may be, You, I really truly believe that if you don't have a specific tangible goal, then you're never going to be able to figure out what you're doing. Yeah, actually, after the recent episode uh, of this with Matt Workman, um, after uh, listener Jackson sent me some screenshots on Twitter of an app he'd started working on, which was, I think, a, a great example of that, that it was structurally a to-do app, like more or less. It was kind of like, okay, here's a list of things I want to do and I can check them off. But um, he had reframed it into being a, a shot list app because he's a YouTuber and he mm-hmm. knows other YouTubers. And he's like, okay, well, I could do some custom features um, in this relatively very simple to build app, but then I can tweak it a little to make it good for people that need to organize their shot lists. I'm like, that's genius. Like it, it's yep. directly applicable to what he knows about and what he sees as a need of his own that he can meet. And he keeps it really simple. Um, and I, I think that's a fantastic place to start. Absolutely. And, and even though there are about a billion to do apps in the app store, that doesn't mean that there's a bespoke to-do app for you. And that probably sounds, again, flippant, but I really don't mean it that way. I mean, there is something to be said for building something that is expressly for you. And once you get to the point that you can do that, it is an incredibly empowering feeling. So an example of this is uh, when I record Analog with my friend Mike Hurley, who has appeared on this program as well, I do a quote-unquote edit of the show, which is to say I listen back to the show and take a note of when one of us coughs or we talk on, on top of each other or make a mistake or something like that. And then I'll send Mike a series of timestamps at, you know, five minutes and 14 seconds you coughed, at seven minutes and 13 seconds I said something stupid, whatever the case may be. And so I wrote a bespoke iPad app that lets me just quickly tap on this massive button that takes up like an eighth of the, eighth of the screen that says new edit, and then I type in, you know, oh, I coughed or yeah. whatever, and then it'll take a note of the timestamp automatically and build a list. And I don't think there's a particular market for this because any normal person that's going to quote unquote edit a show like that will just go to Logic or GarageBand or what have you and actually edit the show. <laughs> but for whatever reason, this is not the way Mike and I do it. I like to listen through outside of any sort of waveform editor, and I just take my notes and then I give them to Mike and he makes the edits. And And so I made my bespoke app just for me. And that took a while to write. It took me like a couple of weeks to write it. But once I wrote it, it was there. I haven't had to touch it since. And it works great. And it's hideous to look at. And it's probably got a bunch of bugs that I haven't hit. But because I'm the only user that uses it, it, I know where to where to hit and where not to hit, and it works just fine for me. And imagine having your iPad or iPhone or Mac or PC or whatever the case may be, or Android device, and being able to say, you know what, I really want blank. 
and then you can build it. It, it. Again, I cannot stress enough how empowering a feeling that is. No, I think that's exactly the right advice because I because I also know that it applies to everything else that I do as well. I mean, if you want to get good at YouTubing, go make a YouTube video. If you want to become a good yeah. photographer, and and also setting constraints to what it is that you're building, not just walking out the door with the camera and just shooting video of the world, and then you come home and put it on your computer and hope. You know, maybe I got something. Maybe I didn't. Yep, you have yep. no idea. It, it seems like it would, I don't know, be harder to have constraints or worse in some way, but it really is so helpful to have some kind of outline of this is my objective and I am either getting closer or further away from it. Because, I mean, I, I find that a lot of people that just, um, just pursue photography as a hobby um, and are just shooting whatever happens to be around them, uh, they end up missing out on certain technical skills. Like, for example, artificial lighting. You know, if you only take the photo when you see light that is good, you never learn to control it yourself because you don't have to. Totally. So mm-hmm. same thing. I mean, um, now I'm like using an analogy to try to understand what you're saying, but you know, if you're trying to overcome certain programming issues, then, uh, you know, it's, it's much different when you need to get through them to accomplish your goal. Like you won't finish your app until you've solved this problem, uh, compared to like, I'll just let the app speak to me and it can become whatever it is that, you know, <laughs> as soon as I hit a barrier, I'll just go in a different direction. Uh, you know, you're, you're not going to really progress that quickly through it. Yeah, no, I think your, your analogy is totally fair. And it, it, it is helpful to have guardrails, you know, so I want to make something that vaguely looks like a to-do app and I don't want to make something that looks like a game. You know, that's a really ridiculous <laughs> yeah, good, wide good guardrail. Good to choose those but, two early, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, it, it, it helps rein you in and give you more focus. And I think that's the thing. And, you know, I don't know if we necessarily want to get into kind of Casey's theory on what programming really is, but one of the things that I, one of my you know, grand theories about programming is that it's really just putting blocks together. And in some cases, you're stacking blocks vertically. You know, a computer has a CPU, a CPU has a, a interface that uses ones and zeros. On top of that is assembly. On top of that is higher level programming languages. On top of higher level, level programming languages is APIs, you know, and OSs and so on. And you're just stacking things vertically. Some, and so you're getting to more and more abstraction as you go higher and higher up this you know, tower. And, and that, it seems this insurmountable amount of things to know, right? Because like, you could go as deep into this, this analogy, or you, or you can go as deep into this tower as how does a CPU really work? Like how does addition happen in a, in a microprocessor? And I could tell you that, probably not off the top of my head, but there was a time I could tell you that off the top of my head. But that's not really relevant, right? Like, what's interesting about programming is you don't really need to know everything. You can just be operating on the 300th floor of a skyscraper and just take it for granted that there are 299 floors below you, and that's okay. And so a lot of times, I think, for for a new developer or for me when I'm learning something new, it seems this insurmountable thing because I know I'm looking over the edge of the, you know, skyscraper that I'm standing on, if you'll let me beat this analogy to death. And I'm looking over the edge, and I'm looking at all these 299 floors below me and thinking, well, I don't know anything about those 299 floors. How can I possibly do anything productive on the 300th? But in a lot of cases, it's okay. You don't need to know everything about everything. You just need to know a little bit about a little bit. And then as you start to learn a little bit more about this, you're, you're, you know, then you start spreading laterally instead of vertically. So, okay, maybe right now I don't know anything about doing networking and downloading things from the internet, but I know about putting buttons on the screen. And then, oh, I need this 
to download an image, you know, speaking of vignette, uh, I need to download an image from the internet. Okay, I guess I'm going to learn about networking. And I move, you know, and then suddenly the skyscraper is getting a little wider, if you will. Okay, well, now I need to be able to read from a contacts database. And so now I've built another skill laterally. And that's, that's kind of been the experience for me that really programming is all about putting together a series of building blocks, both vertically and horizontally, in order to make something work. And it seems so unapproachable at first, but if you, I, I think all of this is to bo- boil down and simplified is it's just a bunch of pieces that you've got to put together. And you got to start somewhere, and eventually you can figure out how to put these pieces together, and then you can make something, you can make a coherent whole out of it. Well, I'm going to try to re-analogize it again, because uh, mm-hmm. what this makes me think of is when you're starting to play a new video game. Or maybe even better is a, a board game. Uh, so recently, I, we like to play Ticket to Ride. It's a board game we like. Um, mm-hmm. And none of our friends know how to play it. So uh, recently, <laughs> we had to explain to them how to play it. And that puts you in the mindset of like, wow, when I started playing this game or when somebody presents me with a new board game, it feels impossible. Yeah. Like you're looking at all these pieces and you're like, none of this means anything to me. I have no idea what you're talking about. What if I'm the only dummy sitting at this table that doesn't get it by the end of the night and everybody else has yeah. figured out how to play? But as you start picking up one element of it, as one thing becomes clear and you're like, oh, you know, when I roll the dice, I move forward. Or, you know, you, you pick up the simplest stuff first, it gradually just starts clicking into place. And I almost like, when when I've learned languages, there's, there becomes this mental thing where my brain starts making shapes around the concepts. So, mm-hmm. you know, a function starts to have a mental shape. And like, it reminds me of after I play Tetris, my brain keeps stacking blocks for a while. And there's <laughs> that same feeling of puzzle solving after you've been learning a new language or working in a language for a while and, and, and coding for a bit, um, where you start to get that same sort of satisfaction of like, a rhythm and this black block stacking or like pieces fitting together that can be really rewarding. And I think is, you know, I think probably how a lot of people end up getting into it in the first place. Yeah, very much so. And the other thing to remember about computers is that they're very, very, very stupid. And I mean that genuinely like computers are extraordinarily stupid, but extraordinarily fast. And, you know, uh, something I like to say to, if I'm having a verbal conversation with people and trying to explain what it's like to be a developer I have them perform an exercise, and I did not t- tell Tyler that we were going to do this exercise, oh, but goody. we're going to do it very briefly right. <laughs> right now. All right, Tyler, tell me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Uh, okay, well, first you want to bake some bread. <laughs> okay, what's bread? Oh, no. Um, there is yeast and flour. And okay, what is yeast, what is flour, and what's the difference? Difference? Oh, no. Okay, am I losing? <laughs> you're, you're actually winning, because the point is the journey, and this is, the, wow, this is sounding really terrible, but, you know, the idea is that with computers, you can't just say, you know, the, the typical answer, for you actually won in a lot of ways, because the typical answer for this is, well, you start by going to the fridge. Well, what's a fridge? You at least had the presence of mind to say, <laughs> well, let's bake some bread. So, actually, you did win, believe it or not, but, but the point is that you have to get, you have to distill everything down to its most basic form. Right. Right. And this it's a silly analogy, but I but it makes sense. Right. Because you can't just say to a computer in most circumstances, go to the refrigerator and open it up and grab the bread. You need to specify where is the fridge? What is the fridge? How do you open the fridge? What is the bread? And again, that sounds like awful. Right. That does not sound fun at all. But the thing is, it's just because computers are so stupid that you need to be extremely explicit. 
But the good news is computers are extremely fast. And so they can make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with incredible speed, as long as you're extremely deliberate and explicit about how you go about doing that. And to come back to my analogy earlier about a skyscraper, you know, on the 300th floor of the skyscraper, you might already have the tools in front of you to say, go to the fridge, grab the bread. But maybe just five floors below, those tools don't exist. But you can build on the work of others and say, oh, yeah, just go to the fridge, grab the bread, and you'll be fine. And, and so depending on where you are in this skyscraper, in the stack, it can, it can actually be relatively straightforward to do incredibly complex things. I mean, if I walked you through how complex it is to get a piece of information off the Internet, it would blow your mind. I don't even know all of it off the top of my head. I can, I can blow your mind with just what I have in my head, but there's a lot that I don't when know. When I hear people walk through the steps that a computer is actually doing to perform basic functions that are happening all the time – as I try to recreate that in my mind, it seems like, why aren't computers failing all the time? Like, how are they getting exactly. this right over and over and over? <laughs> it seems impossible. Yep. And all of a sudden, yep. I'm actually really impressed that they can do anything at all, let alone, you know, run a video game. But um, exactly. well, let's break down the tower a little bit so there's a little more understanding, like what we're talking about in terms of layers and stacks and, you know, what, what goes below what. I, you know, when I was... 10 years old, I, had, I was told that a computer is, is running a series of zeros and ones, and I, that was the mm-hmm. language a computer speaks. And I kind of, I kind of got that enough, but it, what I didn't understand for a while is how much you don't need to <laughs> uh, understand binary to, to code a, a computer. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the layer, as you're saying, layers of abstraction become powerful, and you can move further away from those ones and zeros towards something else. So... Uh, you know, what what kind of happens at the bottom? What's like the lowest level that a normal human might be expected to actually operate these days in, in 2019? <laughs> well, and that's the thing is that the lowest level that exists is a single transistor, right? And there's an unbelievably great YouTube series called Crash Course Computer Science. I cannot overstate how good this series is. And this series, it's like 20 or 25 episodes, but it's like 10 minutes each or thereabouts. And uh, I believe the woman's name is Carrie Ann. I don't recall her surname, but one way or another, she walks through from, you know, pre-digital computers when it was, you know, vacuum tubes and things like that, all the way up through modern things like machine learning. And you start with a vacuum tube, move through transistors, move through chips, move through software, through assembly, which is, you know, as basic as software gets, all the way through higher level, higher level programming languages. It is unbelievably good and absolutely fascinating. And I cannot recommend it enough. It sounds like something I need to watch. Yeah, it's, it seems, ins- as I know I've said this 10 times already, it seems insurmountable and unapproachable at first, but she does an incredibly good job. And at first, it's going to be like, okay, I don't care about any of this. But in order to best appreciate the top of the skyscraper, it's pretty cool to see the foundation. Now, to more directly answer your question, though, what does a, what does a programmer need to know today? Well, it depends, right? So... There's a there's a kind of hierarchy of ways to get into programming today that I was thinking about before we recorded. So if you happen to be an iOS user, there was an app called Workflow, and there's now an app called Shortcuts. It's basically the same thing. Uh, Workflow is a third-party app, then Apple bought it and turned it into Shortcuts. And Shortcuts lets you do things like, as a great example, I can tell my phone, but hey, Dingus, I'm on my way home. And I've written a shortcut that I've told my phone, you know, when I say I'm on my way home, it will run this shortcut. And that shortcut will say, okay, based on where I am, the phone is right now, compute how long will it take for me to return to my home, 
figure out exactly what time it will be that I will arrive home based on current traffic conditions and where I am and so forth. And then text my wife and say, I'm on my way home. I'll be home in five minutes at 5.55 p.m. And all of that happens transparently. All I have to do is say, I don't even have to touch my phone. I can just say, hey, dingus, I'm on my way home. And it will text my wife how long it'll be and what my arrival time will be. And that's done using this app called Workflow. Excuse me, shortcuts. (laughs) Old habits die hard, right? And the way shortcuts works is you just drag boxes around and you start with, okay, you know, get the user's current location. And then you push that into another box that says, you know, figure out travel time. Then you push that into another box that says, okay, send a text message. And you just put these pieces together, these building blocks together. And to me, that is an unbelievably wonderful way to dip your toe into the water of programming because workflow it is programming i mean you can do if else you can do loops you can do all of the the standard programming things but you can do it in a way that is super friendly to a novice developer right, more and to visual me, that's like more mm-hmm, simple it's exactly right it's harder to break mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, yep, I agree in every way. It uh, it reminds me of when I was so I was just remembering my first time programming was actually when I was about this would have been like 14 15 and I had my first Mac and it actually had speech recognition at the time which blows my mind. I mean I I assume it didn't it barely worked but you could, I could talk right. to my computer and it would recognize certain things and respond. So I would write Apple script jokes. Um I could, there was a bunch of jokes built in and you'd say computer tell me a joke because computer was the magic word back then. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it had like five jokes. who so choose one of them randomly. So I opened up that Apple script file, and then I would rewrite my own jokes, where it's like the computer will say this, and you'll respond to this, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, very dumb and simple, but that was perfect for a 15-year-old that doesn't know what computer programming is and uh, was a, a great lead into it. And it also reminds me of what, um, what uh, Matt was talking about on the previous episode, that he... His app, or I mean, I should call it a game, is uh, written using uh, Unreal Engine, mm-hmm. and that it is a visual development interface. Which I didn't realize any complex, advanced development tools were still like that, where you have a bunch of boxes that you drag and drop, similar to nodes. I mean, if anybody uses Resolve out there or Audio Hijack, like you, you move nodes around, connect them in different ways, you know set your variables uh, as parameters on the nodes and it starts building a game for you. And that is, that's, that's amazing that that is even a way to, to make anything anymore. I mean, definitely more advanced than uh, uh, workflow or shortcuts, but uh, yeah, yeah. I like, I like that concept as a way to learn so that you're not just overwhelmed by the language or the text, but you can see what you're doing and still learn the same types of concepts. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and, shortcuts is such an approachable way to do this sort of thing. And I can't stress enough, you can do unbelievably complex things with shortcuts. You know, our friend Federico Vitici over at MacStories.net has done mind-bending things with shortcuts. I mean, I I wrote, this is nowhere near as complex as what Federico has done, but I wrote a shortcut um, if I were to take a nap, you know, during the day. I wrote a shortcut that will actually turn down the brightness on the phone, turn off the volume on the phone, and actually then go to my iMac in my office, which if I've left it very loud and I get a text message, it will actually log into the iMac and tell the iMac, go ahead and turn your volume down too. Mm. So I just you know hit the nap time button on my phone, yeah. and then not only does the phone go into a kind of quiet, well, it turns on do not disturb, and it gets, it gets quiet in general, but then my computer will also do that. And it's, it's again, once you start, you know, 
peeling back on this and kind of, you know, or maybe peeking under the carpet, if you will, and seeing the sorts of things that, that lie down there, you can start to think to yourself, oh, you know what, it would be really convenient if, and then you can just build it. And so that to me is like the, the shallowest end of the pool, if you will. Well, or an, another similar direction would be if this and that, which, uh, you know, yes, actually mm-hmm. types of concepts, but you're doing it on the web. Um, I think a little more simpler. You, I don't think anything generally gets as, as advanced. But um, mm-hmm. you know, same types of things. I, but I do, I do have to confess that I have struggled. Even though I listen to so many great podcasters that f- have found a million shortcuts to make their lives easier, I, I've, they've never clicked for me. Like I've just not thought when I sit down. I'm like, oh, this is great. I hear that you can really make your life simpler because you take out redundant tasks or really repetitive stuff that you do all the time. What are the things that I do the same way every time that I can automate and? Uh, nothing comes to mind. <laughs> I don't know. It's just yeah, a lack of imagination, but uh, yes and no. I mean, it's just, you have to be in the right kind of mindset to do that sort of thing. And, you know, I'm trying to, I'm looking through my library of shortcuts and there's nothing that I think is universally applicable other than my, you know, as I call it, my ETA to home, which is what we described earlier. Right. You know, I'm on my way home. Um, nevertheless, I mean, there's plenty of stuff you can do with this. I mean, you can make GIFs, animated GIFs out of a series of images. You can oh, speed up yeah. or slow down videos. There is one that I use. The, the one shortcut that I still use regularly is uh, it'll attach multiple images into simple grids. So I can just go into mm-hmm. the Photos app and select two or three images and say combine and uh, set like one parameter. I don't know what the option is, but it'll just put them next to each other and then I can tweet it. And I've done that many times for comparison photos or just two photos in one. Um, That's the one that I keep going back to. Yeah, and one of the hallmarks of most developers is that we're all extraordinarily lazy. And if we have to do the same thing more than two or three times in a row, we're going to want a way to automate that. And so that's exactly what shortcuts. Maybe is I'm for. just not lazy enough. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. Uh, so then, let's say you know you've you've mastered shortcuts. You want something more interesting. Well, what I would recommend after that is Swift Playgrounds. So Swift is a programming language that is used to write Mac or iOS apps, and Playgrounds is an app on the iPad that lets you write Swift directly on the iPad. And in a lot of ways, that's a little bit clunky and weird. But it also has a mechanism by which you can learn Swift by doing very small steps, you know, and and it has like a whole, it's kind of like a book metaphor where it has different chapters and different lessons and so on. And you can walk through this book and teach yourself how to write Swift. And Swift, if you know how to write Swift, I mean, that's how I wrote Vignette, which is this app that, you know, I keep mentioning that, that I released a week ago. All of that, literally every single line of that is Swift. There's not even one line of Objective-C anywhere in the app. And so if you can write Swift, you can write Vignette. And, you know, that's you pretty impressive. Yeah, and then you got an app. So, and Vignette is on the App Store. You know, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, the premise is if you have a bunch of of uh, circles on your iPhone with nothing but initials, you know, for your contacts, you know, instead of, you know, my, my face, you see just CL. Well, Vignette will look at the contact card for me, for example, and see that my Twitter handle, if you've put that in there, is Casey Liss. And then it will go to Twitter and ask, the, ask Twitter for my avatar and then allow you, if you uh, pay for the one-time in-app purchase, it will allow you to save that Twitter avatar as my contact image. And so the next time you see me in messages or see that card on your phone, instead of seeing CL, you'll see my face, which is for most people anyway, preferable. And so uh, that's what Vignette does. And again, that's all Swift. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of complexity behind it, but if you distill it down, it's not that bad. It's not that interesting, really. It's just, hey, look at every contact on your phone, 
Look and see if you can find Twitter handles or Facebook handles or Instagram handles or what have you. Go to those services and see if you can find an image that is associated with that username and then present those options to the user and then save them back to the phone when you're done. And again, there's really not that much there on the surface. Now, to make it nice and polished and and robust and hopefully bug-free, that takes a lot more effort. But there's not that much to it, and it is in the App Store and it seems to be doing reasonably well. So, you know, don't don't sell yourself short. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Stallman Presets. So effectively, it's brought to you by you. Uh, this is kind of a way you guys can support the show by using the same presets that we use for all of our client work. I've developed these Lightroom presets over many years, and honestly, I've been using them relatively unchanged for a long time. I just package them up and organize them in a way that you guys can apply to your own photography. And you know what? Someday I would love to be able to create my own real presets completely from scratch, just program everything. But until then, the best I can do is move around Lightroom sliders, and they have a fantastic raw editing algorithm that, uh, honestly, I I probably couldn't build myself. So if you want to download the presets and a 30-minute tutorial about my whole Lightroom process, just go to stallman.com slash presets, S-T-A-L-M-A-N dot com slash presets. And for 20 bucks, you get the tutorial and presets. So thanks again to you guys for supporting the show. What are some of the differences of working alone on, you know, working alone on vignette and doing everything from beginning to end versus when you have a bit of a team and you have other people that, you know, if this part's too hard, you can hand it off to so-and-so. Like, how did it feel different? And should people be afraid of that? I mean, do you have to assume that you're going to need help at some point if you're a beginner developer? Like, when do you need someone else to help you out? Yeah, you know, for most of the app, I was able to do it by myself. But there were certainly occasions when I had a really tricky programming you know, issue that I needed help solving. And I would reach out to friends of mine who are developers and say, you know, hey, I'm trying to accomplish this thing. Do you have any tips or anything you could recommend? Or in some cases, some of, some of them were even generous enough to, uh, to share examples with me. You know, so an example for, for, for this or of this is my friend Curtis Herbert writes the impossibly good uh, snowboarding tracker called Slopes. And I mean, I would assume that this is even more relevant for your Canadian audience yeah, than it is I, for the Americans. I, I, I use Slopes. So, slopes is great. Yep. Yeah, and so Curtis is a friend of mine, and uh, and I'd asked him about how to do a certain particular thing, and he was generous enough to give me some code that he has in Slopes that I could you know model my solution off of. And Slopes is incredibly, incredibly good. I am not a snowboarder, but it is it boggles my mind some of the things that Curtis is able to do with that app. And so we will uh, put a link to that in the show notes as well. But um, but yeah, he was able to share with me uh, you know a, a code snippet and. If I didn't have Curtis, what would I have done? Well, I probably would have posted to Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow is a question and answer site that is geared around development. And there are many other flavors of Stack Overflow for other things. Um, I think it's either asked, I think it's ask different is the general, like I am an Apple user, not a programmer. I'm a user and I want to accomplish something. How do I do it? And there's a zillion other equivalent sites that are all powered by the same engine, but are, you know, about different topic areas. And if you look for almost anything under the sun in Stack Overflow, you'll probably find an answer. Now that answer may or may not be great, but you'll find it. And if you don't find an answer, you can post a question. And, you know, the way Stack Overflow works is that it encourages people to answer questions. And so, if you work alone and need help, and if you don't have someone that's a friend like Curtis to reach out to, then you can look at Stack Overflow. Another thing you can do, especially if you're in a bigger city, is look for a user group or you know programming group. So an example of this for iOS development is Cocoa Heads. 
And most larger metropolitan areas have a Cocoa Heads chapter, and usually they'll get together about once a month and just talk about you know what they're working on and, and help each other and try to figure out solutions to problems. And so you can look and see if there's a Cocoa Heads chapter in your general area. But let's say you live in the middle of nowhere and you don't have any real life, you know, in-person people to ask, there's no Cocoa Heads chapter, well, then what do you do? Well, hang out on Twitter or something and start asking people questions. You know, um, a really, really great developer and wonderful person that I can think of is uh, Becky Hansmeyer, who lives somewhere in Nebraska. I forget exactly where. And if you're not American, Nebraska is fairly, fairly rural and kind of in the middle of nowhere as far as an American is concerned, or especially a snooty East Coast American like me. And so, you know, Becky just started talking to people that she admired and asked questions here and there, but just generally was present. And she built a name for herself as someone who is an aspiring developer. I don't think she went to school for it, but you know she uh, stays home with her two small kids, and when she can scrape five minutes together to write code, she writes some really wonderful apps like Snapthread, which takes a, a series of live images on on the iPhone. The images where they you know the stills, but where they move a little bit Harry Potter style. Mm-hmm. Well, you can stitch those together and build a movie out of them. And Snapthread is incredible. I mean, it's, it's incredibly good work. And she doesn't have any formal education and development. She's just extremely persistent and stubborn, and I mean that in a good way because she was able to fight through whatever problems she's had. And I can assure you, some of the some of the media related stuff on the iPhone is some of the quirkiest and weirdest stuff to deal with. I mean, talk to Marco Arment, you know, my co-host on ATP, about how frustrating it can be to write Overcast the podcast player. So, you know, there's there's a lot of ugliness there, and she was able to work through it. And she, I don't think, has any in person, you know, quote unquote, real world a support structure, but she was able to find a way to build a support structure for herself. And, and that that's hard. Yeah, something I've talked about before is that I, I think it's just so incredible to have a tool like Stack Overflow where other parts of creative production, like uh, video editing, um, photo editing, a lot of those uh, text-based like forum communities have gotten smaller over time. Or um, maybe it's maybe it's even that some of the the best creators aren't super present in them. So it's become more popular to create, say, YouTube tutorials, um, or like the conversations will happen in podcasts. But there's a, there's a big disadvantage once answers to those questions, especially the obscure questions, aren't searchable anymore. Because I know that like. I've run into certain problems and then I've tweeted about it. And then maybe I tweeted the follow-up of how I solved it, but nobody's ever going to find that solution. Whereas Stack Overflow really documents everything. And I wish there was a a better community for that, for everything, for video and photo and everything else that I work on. Because, you know, there are, there are forums out there for, for all the groups, but having something really vibrant where there are thousands (laughs) or millions, I don't know how many developers are contributing, but there's tons Mm -hmm. of people out there that are all, banding together to give a, a really like searchable database of so here is just about every answer that you could possibly need. And, um, you know, if you solve it, then you can contribute to it. Uh, and another thing I think it'd be good to explain a little is uh, how Git and GitHub are, are part of the community out there. Like what is there, what do people need to know about it if they haven't dealt with it before? Yeah. So that's a really great question, which is hard to find a simple answer to. So, when when an office worker is working on a document to share with the rest of their office, you'll oftentimes see a document emailed around and it's like proposal. And then uh, then somebody will make a change and you'll see proposal underscore V2. 
You know what I mean? So it's like proposal version two. Proposal final final. Yeah, exactly right. And you see where this is going. It becomes proposal final final. No, really, this is the final one. I swear it dot doc. You know, I never do that. Yeah, never, never, never. Well, what that is in a way is a kind of super rudimentary version of source control or version control. And Git is a source control application. So Git allows you to keep a record of all of your documents associated with your app or your programming project. And so you can go back in time and look at the way things were before. You can do things like branch. So what that means is, you know, say you're at a known good spot but you want to kind of make a copy and mess around with some stuff, maybe break some things and be able to say, oh, I didn't mean it. Uh, just kidding. I don't want this anymore. And you can make a branch and you can do whatever destructive things in that branch. And you can either, you know, bring that branch back to the starting point or you can say, oh, no, I didn't mean it. Make it go away. Well, Git in and of itself is a technology which is not terribly approachable, but it's a technology that you can use in order to save off all this version information about all of your documents in your project. Well, GitHub is an online repository of many millions of Git-managed projects, so projects that are using Git as their source control in order to keep track of changes. So if you, if you want, you can choose to make a public repository, which is to say a public project on GitHub, that anyone can make a copy of all of that code with one easy command, or, or you can even download it as a zip file, actually. And then suddenly they have all of that code on their computer and can do with it exactly the same things the original author could. And so you'll find that a lot of open source projects, and it was, I should back up, open source meaning that you can see the source code. This is in contrast to, say, an app where you don't get to see the source code. It exists, but as a user, I don't get to see it, right? And even as a developer, I don't get to see it because that's someone else's code. And by the time it gets to my device, it's just ones and zeros. But uh, open source means you know these are developers that are willing to share their code with other developers. and And so you can go to GitHub and you can potentially find solutions to your problems and you can even see the source code. It's not like you're buying, and I don't really know that much about say Final Cut or, or Photoshop or whatever, but I know you can get like plugins for, for Final Cut where they do certain things for you. Well, imagine that you can, instead of having to buy a plugin, you can just go to GitHub and find a plugin and, and you can get it for free and maybe even build your own version of that plugin and using using the one you found on GitHub as a starting point. And so for Vignette, as an example, you know, a lot of that code I wrote myself, but I'm using several open source projects to make to to do things that I want, but I don't want to be bothered doing. And so it's a, there's a little complex ex- describing exactly what they're doing, but um, uh, here's actually a great, a great example. The code to figure out whether or not your phone is connected to nothing, connected to cellular, or connected to Wi-Fi, that code is actually much more complex than one would think. And there is an open source project called Reachability that does all that for you. And a gazillion people use Reachability in their apps. And because of that, you know that that's probably as close to bug-free software as you can get because a gazillion people are using it. It's not like just one person you know, out in the middle of nowhere using it. A lot of people use Reachability. And so I pulled in Reachability into Vignette in order to use that to figure out whether the user is on cell, on, on Wi-Fi, or on nothing at all. And so GitHub is just this place where you can, you, know, you can put up your own code to share it. You can, if you pay them, 
Actually, I don't think it even requires uh, payment anymore. But uh, at one point, anyway, if you pay them, you could have a private repository. So now it just becomes a kind of online backup or a mechanism to share your code with the rest of your team. But you don't necessarily need to share it with the greater public. It's it's an unbelievably valuable tool. And GitHub over the years has become very good at managing projects as well. So I use GitHub's issues um, as a bug tracker. So when I find a bug in Vignette or something I want to do, there's a section of my private GitHub repository where I can put up, okay, I have this new bug and here's how you reproduce it and so on and so forth. And and so GitHub is this unbelievable resource where you can see actual functional code written by developers all across the world in all different languages, in all different platforms. It's it's really remarkable what it's done for the community. Yeah, once I really discovered, uh, like if you start getting into open source stuff and realizing what's really available, it's like turning on a cheat code where all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, well put, yeah, well put. You think you're going to have to do all of this and learn all of these things. And it's like, wait, it's already done. Like I don't even, I don't even need to do this work. I mean, and, and yep. an example I mentioned earlier was Bootstrap. That's a, a very common mm-hmm, mm-hmm. framework for laying things out on a page. And yeah, you're learning all this hard CSS. You're like, how do I solve all these problems? Then you realize, wait, other people have solved this and they've released it for free, and I can just use this in my project, which is pretty amazing. And I also feel like this is a good place to insert um, just a total tangent. For anybody who doesn't know, I am uh, by far not the most famous Stallman out there. A uh, much more significant (laughs) Stallman exists, if you're not aware of Richard Stallman. Uh, He was part of the, uh, I mean, even more open than open source uh, movement of the Free Software Foundation, which I I mean, I think, I'm not real. someday I want to do like a a video about this, just uh, kind of giving his backstory. But I mean, I think that was a bit of like the prelude to what became open source, but he's more into even more open source. I think things can't be used for commercial commercial purposes and stuff. Um, Yeah, he is incredibly influential and also by most measures, if you ask me, slightly kooky. Yeah. um, Because he's of the opinion that there should be no software that is, well, I'm I'm oversimplifying pretty heavily, but, you know, he kind of feels like no software should, well, software should be free as in beer, meaning it should cost nothing. (laughs) And free as in speech, as in anyone can, you know, modify it and use it for their own purposes and so on and so forth. So, you know, he's been incredibly influential because so much of... Uh, there's so much of you know, modern computing that owes its genesis to Richard Stallman, um, but but in a lot of ways he's considered a bit radical, even amongst a group of people that are developers that tend to be you know more radical to begin with anyway. But yeah, yeah. he's kind of like the furthest out there among, amongst all of us. Yeah, I want to read more about that that mo- like his big moment when that influence occurred and what led the the split like how he became more mm-hmm. fringe from the other groups and I'd, I'd just love to know more about it at some point um i feel like yeah. because you know he's he's my uh, competition in google search results so <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh, just other open source stuff to know i mean other things to be aware of is that there there can be implications on depending on what you end up building like if you are choosing open source um frameworks or, or plugins or whatever uh you know being aware of how well supported they are um because if if they've kind of been abandoned and the rest of the world keeps moving forward then you can get stuck with their old code that uh you know may not be adaptable in the future and then to be able to pull it out later can be a bit of a pain so uh you know just do, do some re- research and um you know the way the developers that I worked with would always choose these is based on what's like what is the most well supported because even if the other one has some features you might like you might trap yourself if nothing is happening with the future in it when uh, you know suddenly browsers all 
break compatibility with Fedora. Who knows what can happen? But the thing about open source that's both good and bad is that because you're getting the source code, that means let's say I've put up an open source project that I'm using today, but in a year I stop using it. Well, if this was the sort of thing where I was charging money for it, I would feel a, compu- a compulsion to support it and to continue to improve it, even though I'm not using it for my own needs anymore. Mm-hmm. But with open source, you know, it's easy to say, well, whatever, man, everyone's got the source, so, you know, they can change it and fix bugs if they need to. That's not my problem anymore. Yeah. Later, you know, and so um, it, it comes with good and bad. And something that Marco has said that I thought was extraordinarily uh, smart of him is that you never want to be the biggest project using anything, <laughs> yes, yeah, you know, be that open really source, closed source yeah. or otherwise. So if you're Facebook you're probably the biggest company on the planet using something. Pick any project you want. And that's a tough place to be because the better place to be is one of the small fry people that is using the basic, you know, like plain vanilla easy mode of a project, in which case you are probably going to have a pretty good experience. But if you're Facebook, you're pushing against the boundaries of of whatever. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. You're pushing up against the boundaries in every measurable way. And that's an uncomfortable place to be, be that with open source or with closed source. It's just, it's, it's a tough place to be. And, And just like you said, Tyler, you know, it's usually pretty obvious pretty quickly whether a project is well-liked and or well-supported. I mean, one of the things you can see if you look at a project in GitHub is you can see when the last commit was, commit being the last time somebody had changed the code. And so if you're looking at something that hasn't been committed, you know, there's been no commits in three years, eh, it's probably a pretty good sign that that's not going to be supported anymore. What was that crazy story? It was maybe about a year ago where somebody got in a fight in the open source community and pulled his tiny little code snippet and then the whole internet broke? Yeah, that's actually (laughs) an alarmingly reasonable summary. And I forget the details, but I know exactly what you're talking about. But basically, JavaScript stuff in is like, for example, Node that we had talked about earlier, is extremely notorious for having a million packages, or that is to say a million different open source projects pulled together in order to build something. And, you know, my website is guilty of this. You know, I pulled together like 10 or 15 projects, but they each pulled together 10 or 15 projects, which each pulled together 10 or 15 projects. And you can see how this spidered out. Well, there was, there was a project that did something extraordinarily simple. I think it was like it, it wasn't maybe adding two numerals together, but it was but almost yeah, that like simple. One task, one little thing. It was thing. just comically, comically simple. And the person who wrote it, I think, got in a spat with someone, just like you said, and ended up pulling that project off the internet. And that meant that any time all of the quote-unquote downstream users of this code. So, yeah. you know, the stuff that was already on the internet probably would be fine, but if you, as you're developing new things, it would cause all of that to break. And, you know, a lot of websites, they publish new versions hourly, daily, you know, whatever the case may be. And so as these websites are trying to build their, you know, their new versions of their code, suddenly it's breaking because one person got grumpy and took their extremely simple uh, project off the internet. And so... It is fragile, and this is why Marco, I think, has become so reluctant to use any open source stuff. And he has he has some of his own open source stuff, but he is extremely reluctant to pull in others' work because he doesn't like not owning the entire tool chain. And I don't have quite his reluctance, and I and I typically am far more willing to pull in a project, an open source project. And I pulled in like five or six for vignette. But pretty much all of them are pretty big projects that 
if they went away, it would cause quite a quite a ripple, you know, and somebody would presumably stand up and take over uh, rather than those things just, you know, fading into the, into the ether. And but I understand why Marco's that way, because that does leave, you know, having an open source project in your in your code does leave you exposed. But that being said, I mean, it's not unreasonable to talk about just to be familiar with what all this is. But I'm talking about step 507 of being a developer. And, and I think, you know, really what we're trying to talk about or get you interested in, uh, you know, you dear listener is step one or two <laughs> and step one or two may be as simple as, hey, try out shortcuts on your phone. <laughs> like you don't have to worry about GitHub when you're just playing with shortcuts on your phone. You don't even have to worry about GitHub if you're playing with, you know, uh, Swift Playgrounds on your iPad. Like this is this is pretty far down the 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 journey into being a software developer before you really need to understand how this works. Again, it's good to be familiar with it just as what as a concept, but you do not need to know about any of this right off the bat. Well, to put a bow on the advice giving section, uh, something we've talked about in terms of photography and video is the value of going to school and how essential it is and you know, people that are at that moment in their life where they're deciding whether they're going to pay a lot of money to be taught these things or try to learn it themselves. Um, do you have any thoughts on the necessity of a formal education when it comes to development or who should uh, consider it more important or, or less? Yeah, it's hard to say, right? Because I'm super biased. I went to a four-year school and I did computer engineering, which is kind of half electrical engineering, half computer science. And so uh, whereas most computer scientists, at least at my school, at least at the time, wouldn't really understand what a transistor is or a logic gate or something like that. You know, they would be able to go from the bottom of the skyscraper where the software starts, but I would be able to go all the way into the foundation of the skyscraper, at least at the time. I've long since forgotten all of that. <laughs> but um, is it really necessary? Well, I don't think so. I I think... It was something that my roommate, one of my roommates had said when I was in school, which I don't think was an original thought of his, but he was the first person who had ever said it to me. And he said to me, you know, the reason I'm going to school, and he was an electrical engineer, the reason I'm going to school isn't necessarily because I want to prove that I know about electrical engineering. It's to prove that I know how to learn. And I thought that that was extremely smart of him. And when you graduate with a degree in computer science or computer engineering or what have you, believe it or not, I didn't use 98% of my, you know, schooling at my first job. In fact, I had never used source control in my schooling. And that is like stage one of being a professional developer. How do I get access to the code that all the other developers on the team have written? And I had never even, I'd barely heard of it when I graduated school because school for me say was more about the... That was a huge missing piece for me is like, even as I was working on projects and developing... I always had to get everybody else to set up my uh, workstation. Mm-hmm. It's so helpful to understand that. So anybody yeah. early, earlier on, like, learn that skill because uh, I neglected it and it was bad for me. Yeah, and I mean, when I first did it, I was like, "Wait, what? What are you talking about? You know, how how does this work? What is this it's about?" Hard. It, it it is hard, and and we were talking about this just a couple of weeks ago on ATP, and I was saying, you know, well, I graduated school fifteen years ago. I don't know. I don't know if that's still the case. I would assume not. And we had a handful of people write in and say, no, no, no. Like I'm a recent graduate or I am in school right now. And, you know, only one of my classes has even obliquely glanced off the outer atmosphere of source control. And so I bring all this up as a, as an example that what you learn, or at least what I learned in school, while useful to have that, that foundation of this skyscraper, it wasn't ultimately 
well, I shouldn't say it wasn't applicable, but it wasn't useful in the day-to-day work of building the 300th floor of the skyscraper. And so do you really need to go to like a four-year program in order to be a developer? No, I don't think you do. And and I'll, again, you know, give kudos to Becky Hansmeyer, who I'm almost positive did not have a formal education in any software development, but just decided she wanted to build a specific thing. She wanted to do it for her phone. And granted, it was probably extremely difficult for her, but she did it. And I think that that's, that's perfectly valid. I mean, look at me with my website. You know, I, I had done web development before, but only in very different languages on very different kinds of servers. And I just decided I wanted to learn Node. And I taught myself Node. And why it, it may have been a little easier for me to do that because I had some fundamentals behind it. But it's ultimately not that different than just some, like a photographer to teaching themselves how to code. You know, it's really just figuring out what the different moving parts are and then figuring out how to put them together. And so, no, I don't think you need a formal education. It is easier to get your foot in the door when you have a formal education, but there are ways around that. And to actually kind of bring this back around, one of the one of the best ways for me as an interviewer to get a feel for a candidate was to ask them, hey, do you have anything on GitHub that I can look at? Mm-hmm. Even if it's not something that you're using, but it's an example of your work. And then I can go and look at their code on GitHub and be able to see, oh, you know, this person gets it or, oh, this person has no clue what's going on. And so maybe you didn't have a formal education. Maybe you went or maybe you went to a code camp or something like that, which are these like boot camps where you, you know, typically you pay them a not insignificant amount of money. But in the span of like eight or 12 or you know 16 weeks or what have you, they will teach you how to write an iOS app or how to write, you know, websites or whatever the case I may be. I should do that. Yeah, it, it's they're really fascinating. And and there are, you know, good parts and bad parts to it. And there are even some, I don't remember the name of it. There's one, though, that if I remember right, they let you go, quote unquote, for free. But once you get placed at a job, they like take... 10% mm. of your first year salary or something like that. Totally check my numbers on that. I'm, yeah, this yeah, is no, right I've, off the top of I've my heard, head. But. I've heard about stuff like that. I think that's mm. a real thing. Yeah, and so you know, you could go to a code camp and then you could write something and put it on GitHub. And that is, that is a really effective way to get your foot in the door. In fact, in some ways, having a, a decent or even robust GitHub profile is better than having a four-year degree because a four-year degree is all about theory, whereas GitHub means you put the rubber to the road. You know, you've actually done stuff. And that that's incredibly important and really, really valuable. And that's why I think programming has so much in common with the other creative pursuits we talk about on the show, because a lot of this syncs up with, you know, the advice for photographers or filmmakers. Let's do a thought experiment. Pretend you are a 17-year-old and you have like a, a year left of high school and then you're going to be going to college or university. And um, try to imagine how you want to spend the summer before college and, and university. Because if you can't imagine spending that whole time learning to write an app or like it wouldn't be entered like wouldn't be enjoyable for you to spend the whole time with a camera in your hands or or like doing the thing that you're about to go to school for instead you want to wait till school starts and then you expect to start learning it you're probably gonna struggle like that's Mm -hmm. it's gonna be very challenging for you if you think that you're gonna get all of those skills out of just showing up because all the people that i know that do the best job of all these things care about it all the time like they are always interested in it, always learning more, um, going way beyond what they're going to teach you in school because there's going to be so many holes in in what you get from school. I mean, you're talking about, uh, or not version control, whatever pieces are missing from programming. And I mean, from uh, uh, photography, people don't learn proper business skills or how to mm-hmm. build a great portfolio. I mean, there's a lot of things that you just don't learn. And if you aren't going to go pursue that on your own, it's going to be really hard. It like 
So whether or not you go to school, the school part is kind of optional, but learning on your own is not optional. You have to uh, go the extra mile. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, something I used to ask when I was interviewing and then I, I backpedaled on later, but something I used to ask is what do you work on in your free time? Because generally, not always, but generally speaking, especially, you know, people coming right out of school that typically don't have, you know, families and, and things to to take away from their at-home time. Well, not take away, but you know what I mean. Um, it, 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 typically, those who had one or two or three or 10 projects at home typically were better developers because they're thinking about it all the time. And, and you know, to steal what you just said, because I think it's exactly right, they just care about it all the time. Now, later in later years, I realized that that was kind of being discriminatory against people with families, and so that's why I stopped asking the question. But, but I, I think the point is fair, even if the interview question is not, that caring about it all the time is how you get to be better about it. And I think you're right, Tyler, that, you know, it's not that different than having a camera with you or, you know, or your phone and, and thinking about where can I take a picture here? And I am at best a, a passable amateur photographer, and I'm probably being a little too complimentary for myself there. But, but I think when I, when I do a good job of thinking about where would I take the shot or even taking the shot even better, even if the, you know, even if I take a bunch of garbage photos as, you know, the advice for all budding photographers, we goes, all do. You know, we all do. And it's by taking 300 crappy ones that you get one decent one. And, and it's, you know, by writing 300 crummy apps, not literally, hopefully, but by writing 300 <laughs> crummy apps, 30. you get good. One. Yeah. Right. Hopefully yeah. 30 or maybe even three, but yeah. one way or another, you'll get one good one. I mean, as silly as it sounds, and it's not a fair analogy, but as silly as it sounds, you know, I wrote that podcast editing app for myself and it's pretty crappy. I mean, it gets the job done, but it's pretty crappy. And then the next one I wrote was Vignette, which actually was pretty great, you know, or if I can say so myself and seems to be getting, you know, a decent amount of traction. So I had to kind of burn one, if you will. Well, I'd love to hear more about Vignette now that it's out too. I mean, just kind of what the overall experience was like and uh, where it's going to go next. Like, are you going to keep doubling down on putting time into it? Or uh, I guess you, you might be waiting for WWDC before you decide that too. Yeah. So, you know, the idea was to release it before the big Apple conference, which starts um, actually a week from today as we record this. And And yeah, sitting here now, not having seen final sales numbers because Apple's website is all screwed up for me at the moment. But it seems from what I can tell that the sales numbers are enough that I'm going to keep putting effort against this. And, and yeah, you know, the release has been really, really incredible. Um, There's no, there's no way to sound to say this without sounding completely self obsessed. So I I really apologize. But the the good news with me releasing vignette is that I have an audience. And so I had a built in audience of people that would at least check out the app, even if they didn't pay for the $5 in app purchase, they would at least look at it. But the bad news is, is that that holds me to a much higher standard because, and I spoke about this on Analog a bit, before Vignette, I had things in the app store, but they were part of, you know, a company's app where I was just one developer of many. The the app had been around for like five years. You know, a lot of it was garbage because it was so old, but I can, can, well, it's not my fault. You know, that was all before me. But this was me start to finish top to bottom. And so if this was a festering turd, that's going to make me look real dumb. And a lot of people are going to see it. And a lot of people are going to think I'm real dumb. So it was a lot of pressure. And I didn't know what to expect of it you know, before I released it, especially since to get to, to make vignette work best, it requires some effort on the user's part. You, know, you have to go through your contact list and add Twitter usernames or Instagram usernames. And there's no real good automated way of doing that. Like That's work that you have to put in in order to make my app work for you. But 
So far, the response has been overwhelming in the best possible way, and people seem really enthusiastic about it. They were patient with it for the first version or two. I've already put out, I think, three versions of it, maybe wow, even fast. four. I'm, it's already a blur. Um, but I've put out three or four versions in in the last you know week and a half, uh, or actually just week uh, that it's been in the App Store. Because, you know, when I first released it, the Facebook support was kind of hot garbage. And I don't, I, I do have a Facebook account, but I don't use it that regularly. And so it didn't occur to me how terrible the Facebook support was until it was out in the world. And people very gently told me, wow, this is terrible. And so, you know, I had to quick rush through a fix in order to make that less terrible. And now it is less terrible. In fact, I think it's pretty good and I'm pretty happy with it. But, um, but yeah, you know, the response overall has been really good. And there are bugs. You know, there are definitely bugs, especially if you have, you know, two or three or 4,000 contacts. There are definitely times that the thing crashes on you, and I'm trying to work through that. And I'm hopeful to get some help with Apple uh, next week when I'm in San Jose. But but by and large, it's been extremely, extremely great. And I've been extremely lucky to be able to have that audience to kind of market it to immediately and getting that marketing, well, for free in the sense that I didn't outlay <laughs> anything financial for it, but not for free yeah. in the sense that I've Put worked six years. It. Yeah, I've worked six years on ATP in order to get to this point. Yeah, of course. And, but I mean, like people that are interested in your app, like when they hear that description and are like, oh, yeah, that's for me, like, it, it, it isn't necessarily everybody, either, but they're probably people that are already taking your contact list pretty seriously. So they've probably organized it reasonably well, and hopefully that connects in pretty well to what your app is looking for to make it work and to, to make it pull in as many contact photos as possible. So, um, you know, I, mm-hmm. it, it's just like any, like same with uh, creating a podcast or a YouTube channel or whatever. It's like you don't need to be the broadest uh, app or project for everyone. You just need to have a, a, a niche that cares about it and that is into it and that loves yeah. what you do. And that's what can really propel you forward. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think contacts are a pretty, pretty big niche. A lot of people uh, do manage them. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going to do great and you're uh, going to keep updating it for a while. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it so far. It's definitely got plenty of places where it can be improved. Don't get me wrong. It's not perfect, but I'm pretty proud of it. And um, it, it seems as though it's got enough traction that I'm going to be able to keep developing it and working on it, at least for the near term. Uh, as you said, you know, we'll see what WWDC brings. One of the rumors that had come out a couple of weeks ago was that for iPhone users, they may be able to set their own profile images, and then those profile images would get sent to other iPhone users, which would kind of make a lot of my app useless unless you ever talk to people who are on Android, in which case, well, it's still useful after all, because, you know, those people presumably would not have any mechanism to push their their faces into my phone. That sounds really awkward, but hopefully you can <laughs> get what I'm driving at. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we'll see what happens. I, I'm... I'm just excited to be back in the game, right? Like, you know, when I when I left my jobby job uh, just under a year ago, I, I f- had a flirtation with YouTube, which is actually still going on. It's just in the background, uh, which we have talked about on this show. And, and I'm glad I had that time. I'm glad I tried it out. I'm going to go back to it, at least in part. But it feels good to be back on a familiar horse again. You know, it feels good to be back in the saddle of something that I'm, I'm more comfortable and confident in. You know, I'm, I'm relatively comfortable on YouTube, but I'm not nearly as confident. I had a thought about this driving over. I was listening to you talk about the sound analog, and um, it was reflecting that last podcast I keep referring to with uh, Matt and the connections I was making in my head, which, you know, don't, don't take other people's advice, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you things that you can fully ignore. But what Matt did was he took his big <laughs> YouTube channel that he'd kind of built up an audience about talking about cinematography, and he's like, I'm going to shift gears to working on this app. Like, the, app, the, the game, the app is going to be the most important thing for me. 
And that's what he switched the focus of the YouTube channel to being about is the actual development. And over that time, he also streamed all of the development on Twitch. I'm not saying that's what you should be doing, but sure. there, there could be good reasons to tell the story of, of the projects that you work on within your videos. And I know that you know, it, right now you're a, a car channel, but there's a lot of people that would love to hear the story, like this story. They're obviously interested enough to listen to you talk about it on podcasts. And if there are ways that you ever can think about integrating it into videos, uh, you know, I think a lot of people would watch them as well. I don't know if there's room on your YouTube channel for for both, but uh, you know, I would I would love to to see the story as well as hear it. So, yeah, I've thought a lot about, uh, and I haven't spoken about this anywhere else yet, but I've thought a lot about you know, as as I continue to develop this, and in some ways I regret not having done this already, but as I continue to develop vignette, is there something media related that I could do here? So could I sh- could I or should I do a series of blog posts about it? You know, or even like a daily blog where I say, "Here's what I worked on today." Or, or alternatively, is there a, a podcast vlog. here or a video here <laughs> yeah. or you know, or a vlog? Sure, yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, I I, th- I think that I am not good enough at Final Cut and, and video production and things of that nature. That I think if I were to add a vlog onto my plate, I think it would be all, it would be too much work. Right, right. But that being said, I don't think that your idea is, is a poor one at all. In fact, I think it's quite a good one. It's just, I only have it so many hours in the day and, you know, you try to use it for the, for the best thing you can and the yeah, thing that no, is going to return the most on my investment. And just taking on these projects and then abandoning them isn't a great, you know, you don't want just like more work that you're not able to follow through with or starting a, a blog that doesn't go anywhere. I mean, you know, it, yeah, yeah. obviously you should be, be aware of if you really can handle it or not before you take it on. But, um, but I don't know. I'm excited to follow the story. It's been, it's been fun. Last, uh, what are you looking forward to at WWDC other than the specific feature that directly applies to your new app? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. I mean, I, like, I, I keep – the podcasts I listen to have been talking about Marzipan for a year. So I think there's a lot of lo- – like people aren't as enthusiastic as uh, represents how big of a change this could actually be, like how suddenly completely different our whole software experience on the desktop might be. Um, I don't know. I'm just like still – really interested in how everything might change really, really quickly over the next year or two. Um, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm, that's the, that's the one thing that even though it's sort of old news, we kind of know it's going to happen. You know, iOS apps are going to come to Mac OS. Um, I can't wait to see what that really means. That's like the big thing for me. Yeah. I think that's the number one thing that I want clarity on. And it's tough because I am a devout computer, traditional computer user. And to me, the computer is the iMac or the laptop, and the iPad and the phone are different things. And I haven't had the chance to read it yet, but from, all, from everything I've ever heard, Federico wrote this unbelievable like treatise on how he uses his iPad. And if you're not familiar with Federico's work, again, Federico Vitici over at MacStories.net, um, he is iPad first and, and as close as he can be to iPad only. In fact, he might be iPad only at this point. Um, and so for him, the iPad is his computer and his Mac Mini or whatever he has is his, oh, I just need to do this one thing device. And to me, it's very much the opposite. Well, as someone who really likes my Mac and really likes the way my Mac works, I'm very hesitant to see that messed with. And I'm very scared that handcuffs will appear where they weren't before or like balls and, you know, ball and chains will appear <laughs> yeah, yeah. where they weren't before. And that, that scares the, the junk out of me. 
But on the other side of the coin, it, you kind of got to, you know, you got to get on the train when it's leaving the station because eventually, you know, you're going to be the only one left. And so I'm trying to be enthusiastic about the idea of Marzipan and of, and of iOS apps hitting hitting the Mac. And, you know, maybe there'll be many more apps on the Mac and maybe there'll be much more fresher and newer and more interesting apps on the Mac. You know, the, the way you develop apps for the Mac and for, uh, and for iOS, are it's different enough that it's frustrating for developers because a lot of it is very similar, but a lot of it is very not the <laughs> same, very much not the same. And, that, and when you're so good at writing an iOS app or you're so good at writing a Mac app, to go to the other platform is so disheartening because you go from being an, a subject matter expert to a novice, even though it's like so similar, you know, I wish I had a, you know, I'd say going film to video or video to film on the, on a, at a glance, it seems like, oh, it's basically the same stuff. You're taking an image, putting it in a box, but in reality, it's actually quite different. And I mean, you don't need me to tell you that, but, um, it's a similar amount of frustration. So I'm, I'm interested, interested to see marzipan. Uh, I'm also very interested to see what happens with iOS specifically on the iPad, because I do have an, an iPad pro it was the first iPad I'd bought in a while. And I really, really do love this thing. I really do. But I do feel hamstrung by it. Do you end up using it a lot day to day? Like, how often do you crack open your iPad? Because I, I love it as well. I mean, I think the new iPad's the best in a long time, but I still don't end up putting a lot of hours into it. Agreed. I feel the same way. And in fact, yesterday I was trying to write a small example app, which um, is actually on my, it's my most recent repository on my GitHub profile. Um, But I was writing an example app and it it was small and simple enough that I thought I would be able to do it on Swift Playgrounds. And I probably could have, but after sitting at the iPad for like half an hour, I realized this is just getting in my way and being frustrating. I'm just going to go to the, go to my laptop and do it that way. And that'll be easier. Um, and I feel like so much of iOS is that way, that it's so close. Like, here's another great example that I think will ring even more true for you, Tyler, is I have a Micro Four Thirds camera that I take pictures on, and and it's not very fancy compared to some of the stuff that you have, but it's fancy for me, and I like it, and I enjoy taking pictures of my family on it, and I have two small children that I enjoy taking pictures of with it. And a lot of times, if I'm on the go, I might have my iPad with me, and my iPad has a USB-C port. I have a SD card reader, and a USB-C SD card reader. And I want to be able to not only pull pictures off of the SD card and onto the iPad, which I can do, and that's relatively straightforward in iOS today. But what if I want to go through and cull and, and get rid of the 300 crummy shots and leave only the one good one? Well, there's no way to do that on iOS today. And that seems ridiculous. Like, this is a full-bore computer. Even though sometimes I don't think of it as one, it is. Yeah. So why can't I delete a file on, on an SD card? Like, simple st- – well, it's easy for me to say, right? But it <laughs> feels like it's simple. Simple on a Mac. Right? Yeah, it's simple on a Mac. Why can't I do it on iOS? And if even even just being able to delete files on an SD card attached to the iPad would make it way more useful to me than it is today. And that's just one example of many. And this has been covered ad nauseum by my program, by equivalent programs, you know, like the one that Mike does, you know, the, the ones that Mike uh, that Mike does. Um, there, there, I, I feel like I could beat this dead horse even further to death. But but the point is there's so much about the iPad that's that's really lovable. And I love the form factor. I love having face ID on it. I love the smart keyboard folio or whatever it's called, where the keyboard is attached, but it doesn't weigh a million pounds and it's easy to type on and comfortable. I love all of these things about the iPad. But 
today, especially as a developer, I just can't get my work done on it. And I got to imagine it's the same for you, you know, doing photography work. I'm sure there's some things you can do, like Pixelmator, from my perspective, is incredible on the iPad, but, yeah, for sure. but uh, you know, in or an aperture or what have you. But I don't see you doing like the equivalent of Final Cut Pro work on the iPad. I know there's apps, what is it, Fix? Figment fixture, something like that. I forget what it's called, but there's something that's supposed to be equivalent to Final Cut Pro that's supposed to be incredible. But uh, but I just don't see I don't see you sitting down and doing it that way, right? Yeah, the biggest missing things are file management. I mean, by far, like even right. even when the editing software is there, like Pixelmator is pretty great, and Affinity Photo and Lou. I'm not remembering it. Uh, Loom 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 something is the name of the, uh, the video <laughs> editing one. Uh, and I've tried them all and I can do cool stuff with them. And same with the uh, Lightroom mobile as well. I mean, super powerful apps. And I think they could be there once the full file support arrives. Like that's the that's the missing piece. I mean, yeah, you, you guys have talked about it a million times. But I think anybody that doesn't follow Mac news or iOS, uh, you know, Apple news closely is still going to be surprised at the huge tidal wave of changes that might come through the software after this because well if we get some kind of additional file support like let's say let's say i could plug in uh any hard drive into my ipad all of a sudden that's what that's what it would take for me to be able to start editing video is that i can have an external hard drive that's storing the files because the processor in there is fast enough i mean it's super fast great graphics card or graphics chip um yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. like everything is is really really powerful i just need somewhere to put a lot of data, like tons of it. And uh, same when it comes to editing audio, you know, like Ferrite seems like a really fun option mm-hmm. for editing podcasts. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I'd, just moving the files back and forth, um, that's that's a huge obstacle. So there's all these little things that are just so close. And I don't know. I don't know if this will be the year for all of them. But, uh, you know, even again, like Mar- Marzipan, this, for people that aren't following this closely, they're going to be shocked at how much the world suddenly changes from under them if they haven't been looking at the rumors for the last year because, um, you know, it's it think, things are going to be very different just through uh, some uh, big software updates. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's an exciting time. And, you know, the rumor was in 2018, the rumor was that there were a lot of features that were planned for release in 2018 that at the 11th hour got pulled. And so... It stands to reason this is going to be an interesting year because it stands to reason that all those 2018 features got finished up real quick, easy for me to say, you know, in late 2018, early 2019. And then there were all the 2019 features, hopefully, that also got put in. So this, for both for every platform involved, this could be an absolutely manic and, and monumental year for Apple platforms. Oh. and. I hope that's the case. And I will be at the conference. I will be at WWDC. Uh, I am going to be in the keynote room when it, when it happens. And then we, I will be in the State of the Union, which happens after lunch, uh, Pacific time. That's after the keynote. And that's kind of the developer-specific keynote where they start talking about things that are less interesting to the greater public, but more interesting to developers. And actually, let me bring this back around. If you've never watched a State of the Union before, but you're interested in development and programming... Why don't you watch it this year? That's great advice. Even though, even if, even if you don't understand a darn bit of it, <laughs> it'll get you exposed to it, and that's the first yeah, step. It'll get right? you closer to understanding. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for covering all this, Casey. And you know, obviously, everybody check out Casey's coverage of this everywhere that he talks about it. Uh, I'm sure you'll tweet and talk about it on all your podcasts. And I mm-hmm. can't wait. We're going to talk about it more here too. Well, thank you so much, Tyler, for having me on. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. And uh, I am ready to come back whenever you're ready to have me.
You know, I was thinking, and another great website, in addition to Crash Course in Computer Science on YouTube, that's really fascinating is folklore.org. All right. This is the story from Andy Hertzfeld, which was one of the uh, engineers that, that developed the software for the original Macintosh back in the 80s. And he has tons of stories about what it was like to create that platform from literally nothing. And they're not particularly nerdy in a lot of cases, but they're incredibly fascinating. And there's a, there's a printed, bound printed book about this uh, that's basically the contents of this website, but you know, formatted in book form called Revolution in the Valley. And it is just unbelievably fascinating reading that, that you know, if you find this sort of thing interesting, then you might really be cut out to be a developer. You know what I mean? Because they're just, these stories are talking about, like, how do you come up with a button? You know, what, where does that come from? And I haven't read folklore.org in a long time, so maybe that specific example isn't there, but that's the sort of thing that, that is covered here. Like, how do you come up with how a user interacts with a computer. What do you do with a mouse and a screen? Because they were the first to really make this a, a thing and make it friendly for users. So I can't stress enough, folklore.org is an incredible resource to read through if you want to kill some time. No, it's crazy that there are these things that even had to be invented. Like, you just take yeah. them for granted now. Like, yeah, of course, of course, a button. Like, there's always right. there's always buttons. Or What else would there be? Yeah, totally. Or the keyboard on the uh, iPhone. Uh, you know, in the Creative yeah, yeah, Selection yeah. book, he talks about how, like, mm-hmm. oh, the, all the keys were smushed together into uh, these jumbo <laughs> keys. Like, that just seems crazy now. But you had to solve those problems first. Yeah, I, I absolutely yeah. love those stories. So definitely check it out. 